This is former Congressman Joseph Gao. I am living in New Orleans, Louisiana. I am a practicing attorney, also a doctoral candidate at Tulane University down here in New Orleans. I'm getting my doctorate in philosophy, more particularly political philosophy. Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over. So Joseph, I, I actually want to start uh, by this idea that with all that's going on in the world right now, and you being a, a student of, of you know political philosophy, how much of an impact do we as citizens of the United States have on our Congress calling for peace or the world to listen to us? What kind of a voice do we have as ordinary citizens calling into our congressional office? As a former member of Congress, uh, I do listen to what my constituents have to say. Uh, and then at the same time, uh, I have to balance out uh, the issues that we are confronted with and and try to and try to find out the best way to approach the problem, the best way to find a a solution. So being in Congress myself, I do know that uh, members of Congress do listen to the concerns of 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 the of the constituency. And of course, when you're talking about the problems that we have, in the world today, there are many issues that we are confronted with. For example, the war in Ukraine, um, the war between Israel and, and, and Hamas. Uh, and on top of that, the uh, many human rights violations and abuses uh, throughout the world. So it depends on where your member of Congress is in, in regards to some of these issues, then obviously, uh, and, and again, what what side are you on in regards to, to, to these issues, then, then the conversation must begin with, with respect to finding the common ground and, and, and how to voice your concerns and make sure that your congressional member uh, listens to your concerns. How does it really work? Because, you know, I can imagine like people, hundreds of thousands of people are calling into the congressional offices in their district and the phone lines are all jammed up. How, how does this really work? Does, does our voices and calls really matter? I I do believe that that, that they do matter. Uh, and, and, and obviously uh, with this, with all the issues that we have right now in the world, I'm pretty sure, especially in regards to uh, Israel and Hamas, the phone lines are always busy. Uh, what you have to do is, uh, I guess you have to constantly try and try to get through because I know that uh, when I was, my office, we used to have two phone lines and during very contentious uh, debates, for example, during the healthcare debates, uh, during the, um, the debate on cap and trade on, on on the stimulus bill, the phone lines are always busy, and it's it's extremely difficult to get through. Uh, but if you try hard enough, if 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 uh, you get lucky, you might get through, and you might have a chance to to voice your concerns to to your congressional member. So my advice to you is keep on trying until until you get it done. Okay, and then what happens? There's a spreadsheet. You, they log in a call. The two operators on the receiving end are typing in your complaint. How does it work? Well, they 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 do. I I, I do have staff members that talk to uh, that talk to the constituents. Uh, they would take down their names and phone numbers and write down their concerns, and they would actually talk to the uh, the, the staffers would actually talk to the person on the phone line and try to uh, explain the issue or or maybe uh, write down the issue and then pass it down and then and then pass on the conversation to me. But oftentimes the, ish, the staff members would talk to the constituents and try 
to best help the uh, constituent in, be- in the best way possible. Is there a time where you tally everything up and you know your constituents are going one way? For example, I think in Congress today, they're all voting and they're thinking one way where the rest of the citizens that are upset about the Hamas and Israel issue, they're calling in and they want to vote the other way. They want a ceasefire. But the Congress is having to probably vote a different way. So how much of that weighs in on, on a congressperson? Well, well, first of all, Congress is very limited in what it can do in regards to foreign policy. Uh, foreign policy is very much the purview uh, of the executive branch. I mean, we, as members of Congress, we can listen to our constituency in regards to uh, where they are uh, with respect to Hamas and Israel, and and and, and the members of Congress can voice our concerns, but at the end of the day, it's up to the executive branch and the uh, and the State Department really to 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 address what positions the American people uh, hold in regards to uh, Hamas and Israel. You know, at, at at this point in time, I'm pretty sure, you know, we do recognize that Israel does does have the right to defend itself, but at the same time, uh, by waging a war where there is a lot of indiscriminate, uh, harmful uh, things that are being done to the Palestinian people, it also causes a lot of concerns among the American people. So I can see uh, the conflicts that are inherent between uh, Israel and Hamas, and how Israel uh, is approaching the problem, or at, at least is addressing the issue of Hamas, and how it will defend itself uh, in the future. Well, thank you so much for entertaining me, because um, you know that's that's been weighing heavily just on my mind, and I just want to open up with that. And I, I think um, you know just hearing sort of um, your thoughts on on how much we because you know you see it on social media all the time reach out to your congressional office to 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 voice your opinion and your stance. And I always wonder how much of it really matters, how much we voice our opinion, you know, in, in, a, situ, in a situation like um, what's going on right now. Well, again, uh, whether or not uh, your, whether or not voicing your concern actually changed the mind of your congressional member uh, again, you know, if you are successful in doing that, that would be great. But the democracy that we have is that you are able to voice your concern. You know, wh- whether or not voicing your concern uh, uh, is successful in, in getting him or her to support your position, uh, that for me, I mean, that's sort of somewhat unclear. But at the end of the day, Democracy is your ability to voice concerns. In, in many countries, for example, in Vietnam, in China, you're not even able to voice your concern. You're not, you know, you're not even able to to have your voice listened to by anyone. Uh, so, in in the United States of America, just the ability to voice your concern is already a testament to democracy and the system of government that we live in. I know recently, I found out recently that you spent uh, six years or seven years, several years uh, as a Jesuit um, studying to become a a Catholic priest. And uh, I was really um, excited about that little bit of information because uh, I grew up in the Catholic church and parents were very strict and um, they wanted me to become a priest. And I I spent some time in the Norbertines uh, a few years um, in their sort of high school. They were getting us to uh, get into the seminary right after high school. And I always find it, um, it was very character forming for me during those years. And just recently finding out uh, in Oregon, being with you, that you were you spent uh, several years in the Jesuits. I want to ask you, how do you think it informs your work or how has it informed your work 
um, in politics, because I understand in politics, there's things that you need to do that sometimes probably against the upbringing that you had while you were in the seminary. Yeah. Now, first of all, um, the person that I am today, uh, I attribute um, very much to my time uh, in the Society of Jesus. Um, you know, with uh, with with respect to to similar to many of our young people today, uh, when you're 21, 22, uh, and graduate from college. Uh, very few uh, young people really know what he or she uh, would want to do with their life. Uh, and that was and that was the same for me. When I graduated from college at the age of 22 with a degree in physics, I was uh, very, very much a lost individual. I, uh, I did not know where my position in life is I did not really, I was not really sure what path I was to take. Uh, and of course, at a very young age, I wanted to become a Catholic priest. And so that was the reason why I joined the Society of Jesus. But uh, but uh, when I was in the Society of Jesus, uh, there was um, much time for me to, to learn about myself, to really understand who I am as a person, uh, where my skills are, uh, and what I want to do with my life. Uh, so it was in the Society of Jesus that I wanted to become a politician, that I wanted to um, make change in the world, uh, and therefore um, I pursued that plan after I left the Society of Jesus. So yes, um, I have to say that the person I am today is because of my time I spent uh, in the Society of Jesus. Now, in regards to whether or not uh, my training in the Society of Jesus or maybe even my religion uh, affects my decision making. Well, obviously, we are, we as an individual are parts of, of our experiences, you know, how how we live our life, uh, what kind of values we hold. Uh, we are groomed by, by, by our backgrounds, by the experiences that we have. So, you know, for me, when I approach uh, an individual, when I uh, approach a group of people, no matter who they are, whether they're rich or poor, um, I treat them with the, with the same respect. And, and obviously that's very much part of the religious upbringing, the Jesuit training, that we have to respect people for who they are, um, regardless of their background, their education, or or their wealth. Now, with respect to my decision makings when I was in Congress, uh, obviously there are, like like you said, oftentimes there are conflicts that I must resolve. And of course, as a, as a member of Congress, first and foremost, First and foremost, I have the duty uh, to represent my constituency. But at the same time, um, there are also certain moral positions that I hold uh, that as, as an individual that at times come into conflict with the decision that I have to make when I was in Congress. i just give you an example, the healthcare debate. Um, as you know, uh, the what 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 comes to be known as uh, the Affordable Care Act now was very was very contentious uh, when it was first debated, and and of course the the the, the issue of healthcare uh, is very complicated, and on top of that, uh, it gets more complicated when you bring in the issues of abortion and so on and so forth into the healthcare bill. So when I was voting on the bill, um, the bill was introduced in the House, uh, had what they call a Hyde Amendment, which would uh, prohibit uh, federal money to be used in, 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 in funding abortion services. So, 
with the House version of the bill, um, I was able to vote in support of it because of the constituency that I represent that the health care bill would benefit the people that I represented, but that I would not compromise my moral position in regards to, to abortion. Uh, but after that bill passed the House, it basically died. And we are confronted with the Senate version of the bill, which did not have the hide language preventing federal fundings to support abortion. So at that point in time, you know, that there was a great, I guess, again, within me, uh, internal conflict in the sense that on the one hand, uh, I have to represent my constituents, but on the other hand, I have to confront with, from which was for me, an overwhelming more evil that I cannot support. So, you know, be debating between the two, um, I, I ultimately sided with my own moral view that abortion is some something that is so evil that I cannot support no matter what. And therefore, I finally voted against the final passage of the Senate version of the Affordable Care Act, which eventually became law and what is now the official uh, Affordable Care Act. So yes, there were oftentimes when I was, when I was in Congress where my own personal values would, would conflict with my duties as, as a congressman, you know, where, where, where some of those issues does, does not interfere with my core values than, than the representing my constituency would, would outplay. But when those, but when those, but when my representation conflicts with my core moral values, then sometimes my, my core moral values trumps the voice of my constituents. This episode is brought to you by Red Boat Fish Sauce. I love cooking with Red Boat because it's made with only two ingredients, wild-caught anchovies and sea salt. This premium fish sauce is made in Phu Quoc, Vietnam and bottled right here in California. You can find Red Boat at select Asian supermarkets like 99 Ranch, H Mart, and Tong Fac. When you are placed in that situation, is it hours or days of suffering or debating yourself? Is it a long drawn out fight internally? Or is it very quick in your mind which direction you have to take? No, it, it was it was a it was a long uh, drawn out conflict for me because I know that, uh, you know, because I am a person who holds uh, my duty uh, very seriously. I mean, you being a former Marine, uh, or you serve in the United States Armed Forces, you know the concept of duty, and 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 how that weighs on your decision-making. Uh, oftentimes you might disagree uh, with your commanding officer, but because of your duty to obey him, you would do it even though there is some conflict within you. And, and, and the same here with me as a member of Congress. Uh, I do have a duty that I, 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 I need to follow and that duty must be weighed uh, in regards to all the other issues that we have to confront, personal issues, family issues, uh, so on and so forth. So for me, it was uh, a very much drawn out debate, which eventually at the end, I knew that uh, I, I, I cannot uh, support something that would make it difficult, make it difficult, difficult for me to live with myself. Even though I know that by voting against the final passage of the Affordable Care Act, I would actually lose my congressional seat uh, because because the President Obama uh, was very much wanting me to support it. And with me not supporting it, 
I knew for a fact that he would go against me. And that's, that's exactly what happened. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, I was um, able to live with, with myself as a human being, uh, as a person who upholds his or her uh, moral values. And I was able to do that given all of these conflicts that we had to confront. And when you say Obama wanted you to vote that way, did you get a call from him? Like, how does that, or does he just tell a bunch of you, hey, I really want you to go this way? But, it, you know, is it a personal call to you and, and saying and pleading with you? Well, this this was what happened. Uh, he had, uh, I was, uh, I was on, on, on friendly level with one of his staffers. Uh, I can't remember uh, the female, uh, I can't remember the, the lady's name now. But uh, she invited me uh, to the White House to have lunch with her. So, of course, I went to the White House and had lunch. And then she said, well, uh, you know what, Mr. Gao, Joseph, uh, the president wants to see you. And I knew exactly what, 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 what it was for. So I was led up uh, into the Oval Office. And, of course, the president was there. And, and his chief of staff, but at that time it was uh, Ram Emanuel, who eventually became the mayor of Chicago. So I was alone with the president, along with his chief of staff. And there we had a conversation of whether or not uh, I could support the final passage of the healthcare bill. And it, at that time, I had already made up my mind. I said, Mr. President, um, if you can somehow uh, include the Hyde Amendment onto the Senate bill, then I will support it. But if you cannot include the Hyde Amendment onto the Senate bill, mm -hmm. then I cannot support it. Uh, and of course, he was not able to do that. So I, I ended up voting against the bill. But that was the crux of our conversation in the Oval Office. And why did that lead to you not being uh, voted back? And 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 pardon my, I apologize for not knowing much about politics, but I guess that's why the conversation is here. I I'm very curious why it led to you not being back in Congress. Because uh, because President Obama campaigned against me during my reelection, and I was the only Republican that he campaigned against. The only Republican that he campaigned against, and of course I represented. Uh, a black district, being a Republican representing a black district, and of course, uh, with Obama being African American, he had a very strong, convincing voice in that community. So he 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 basically campaigned against me, and so I lost. Wow! So he wow. actually got on uh, advertising whatever from from where he was, and he actually campaigned against you. So he helped. That's that, that's correct. That's Fascinating. Correct. Yeah. I didn't even know that that was possible. Mm -hmm. wow. What led you into politics? I guess uh, the desire to make change, the desire to build a better community, the desire to to help people. Uh, and I must say that during my two years in Congress, I did help uh, many people because as you recall, Hurricane Katrina uh, devastated New Orleans in in uh, August, September of, of 2005. Uh, and when I won the election in 2008, um, New Orleans was very much still, uh, was not being rebuilt. Uh, and many, and the cost of that was the red tape in getting the money out uh, through FEMA. Uh, so after I won, uh, I basically worked with the Obama administration to change the culture at FEMA, to clear the red tape. And I was able to basically push out over a billion dollars, a billion dollars to help rebuild schools, hospitals, uh, infrastructure in, in New Orleans. So, so in that regard, yeah, I was able to help uh, thousands of people literally uh, during my two years in Congress. Now, again, I, I, I would never admit to knowing much about politics. And again, that's why we're here. 
I recall that you were pretty historical back in those years because there was nobody higher ranking ever as a Vietnamese person uh, in U.S. politics before you. Is that correct? Yes, that, that, that is correct. And even to this day, there's there's no has there been any person higher than you in in public office in the United States? Um, I guess not not higher. Uh, Steph, uh, Stephanie Murphy was the first Vietnamese American uh, in Congress. Uh, she's no longer there, but she was there for two terms. Uh, there has not been a Vietnamese American senator, um, and. Based on my understanding, there has never been a Vietnamese American cabinet member. Uh, so, so at this point in time, uh, myself along with Stephanie Murphy would be the two Vietnamese American holding the highest uh, political office in regards to. Um, the Vietnamese American community here in the United States at this point in time. Now, it doesn't mean that in the future there won't be somebody who might be higher. Uh, you know, there is uh, Hong Kao with the same last name as, as myself who lives in Virginia. He is running for the U.S. Senate in, I believe, in the next year or so. And if he were to win, then obviously he would be the highest uh, Vietnamese American ever elected to any to a political office in the United States, and of course, um, there will always be a chance for a, a Vietnamese American to be appointed uh, in a cabinet position. Uh, and if that were, and if that were to be the case, then obviously uh, that would be uh, quite historical. Why is it important for us to even have political seats as Vietnamese people? You know, we, as, as a community, we need uh, a strong voice to advocate for our community. Uh, and I must say that when I was in Congress, um, the Vietnamese community was always uh, in my forefront. Um, and when I approached a member, I talked to them I could get I could get things done very 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 easily. When you have a person at the table, uh, it's always easy to get things done. You know, like 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 you uh, convey your frustration uh, at the beginning of this interview. You're wondering whether or not your member of Congress listens to you when you call in and voice your concerns, uh, and, and that is uh, a a very um, poignant uh, concern you have that your member of Congress may or may not listen to you. But when you have a person at the table, when I'm at the table, where I talk to my colleague at an equal level, then there is a better chance that he will listen to me than let's say to you who is not a congressional member, who, uh, is, a who is a constituent. So yes, it is very important for us to have a voice at the table, to have a political power, to make change, to empower our community. And we can see that very clearly when you have uh, a Vietnamese American sitting in a position that's able to influence change. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I basically believe in that answer, but I wanted to hear it from somebody who's already lived that, you mm -hmm. know, because I mean, that's, that's really an important thing that we are missing in the United States. We're missing more young people who are interested in a career in politics. And I think that, you know, in, in, in a few more questions, I'll, I'll get to the question of, of why we don't. But I, I want to ask you, before we move on, what do you think are the skills that anyone in the United States needs to be a good politician or a politician that gets voted in? Again, again, when you're talking about a good politician, a politician get voted in, um, they might not necessarily be synonymous. Uh, you can get voted in 
but you might not be a good person. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and again, you know, there are a, a few members of Congress that I can, that I can point out right now where I think the, the their language, uh, the way that they operate in Congress, um, is not conducive to, uh, it's not conducive to to lead people to think that he or she is a good person. Yeah, and 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 of course, you know, like uh, like like any institutions, uh, big institutions that that we encounter, Congress is a big institution. There are four hundred thirty five House members, uh, and each House members uh, have their own personality, their own history, their own background, and of course, their own ego. So. So, um, so it is hard to say that a good person get voted in. Uh, but I must say, I must say that the majority of the people that I met working in the house were very, very good people. You know, people who are who who were truly concerned about uh, the country. Who were truly concerned about uh, the people that the that they represent, who are truly concerned about making change for the better. I would have to say that the majority of the people that I met in Congress are good people, but of course there are those outliers. You know, those people who are one reason or another, uh, maybe are not considered what I consider to be a moral person. And of course, those types of people get voted into Congress also. But 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 at the end of the day, I have to say that most of the people in Congress are good people. I guess my question, the follow-up question is, what skills do you need to be a politician that gets voted in all the time? I guess... Uh, uh, if whether or not you are a people person, whether or not uh, you have a personality that uh, that uh, people like, um, but 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 at, but again, you know, there there is a lot involved in getting elected into a position. Uh, it deals with, for example, uh, how much money you have, how much money you're able to raise. How good is your campaign team? Uh, you can be a very good person, a very smart person, a very friendly person, but if you don't if you don't have the money to convey your 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 message, if you don't have the money to uh, to enable people to know who you are, then you won't get elected. So uh, the the bad part about the political system that we live in right now is, is money money rules. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, if you don't have money, no matter how good you are, it would be extremely difficult to, for you to win. So oftentimes, you know, people who win might not be the best person, but they are usually the one with the most money. That's uh, disheartening to hear because, yeah. yeah, that's really disheartening because that that just means that, um, you know, the top percentage of uh, Americans are the ones that are running the country with really no connection to on the street or the ground level, right? To the normal people. No, no, no. I, 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 I would not say that. I, I mean, I would say that most members of Congress, they... They do uh, understand the district that they represent, that they do relate to the people that they represent. Uh, I would not say that they don't understand uh, their constituency, but yes, you are right. If you were to look at uh, the members of Congress, uh, most of them are quite wealthy. Uh, you look at Nancy Pelosi, I believe uh, her net worth is uh, is close to 100 million. Uh, other members of Congress, um, you know, a lot of, 
most members of Congress are millionaires. Yeah. Uh, so so that's because they have the money, they have the infrastructure uh, to help them get elected. Uh, but of course, there are members who are not, mil- you know, millionaire. When I came to Congress, I was not a millionaire. I actually, uh, I think they did a survey. I was one of the poorest members uh, <laughs> of Congress. You know, I I couldn't even um, afford to rent an apartment in Washington D.C. So I slept in my office for two years. Wow. <laughs> so. So it doesn't mean that, you know, only wealthy people get voted in. Uh, but yes, the majority uh, of the people in Congress are, 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 are rich people or wealthy people. Well, we wow. got to rewind here. What, what do you mean you slept in your office for two years? I mean, uh, how is that even possible? Well, uh, in the, uh, in the, um, let me see. In the house office buildings, uh, in the basement, they have gyms, they have showers. Uh, so, uh, so, so I'm I'm able to sleep on the couch, wake up early in the morning, go down to the gym, work out, uh, take my shower, and then go back up to my office to work. Uh, and that's what I did for two years. I slept on the couch for two years. It's remarkable. <laughs> Yeah. Now, do you think it's easier for um, people to politicians to run, for example, Vietnamese people to run in a predominantly Vietnamese community like Orange County? Or is it easier to make a case for why you should get voted in in a predominantly black community the way you were voted in? Well, I think that for a Vietnamese American to win, uh, obviously, if you live in a district that is predominantly Vietnamese American, uh, it would be easier for you to win in that district. Uh, for me, it was an anomaly. You know, I I lived in a district that is predominantly African American, and it was a good timing for me. Um, I ran against an incumbent who was indicted for corruption. Uh, and people were were fed up with him. Uh, but at the same time, though, I had a core group of individuals who really went out uh, of the limb to help me. And they put together a great strategy on how to win uh, with very little amount of money, actually. Uh, and we were able to do that in the shortest amount of uh, in the shortest amount of time. I think I ran a campaign in a period of 30 days. Wow. We raised the money and we won an election in in a period of 30 days. Uh, before that, I was an unknown entity. Uh, we The campaign didn't have any money, but we were able, but everything fell into place and we were able to put everything together in 30 days and win a campaign. And how has that two years of being a congressman in the United States changed or informed your life in the future? I don't think that it has changed my life very much. Uh, Before going to Congress, I was an attorney. After Congress, I'm back being an attorney. Uh, Obviously, after Congress, I'm a very well-known attorney uh, and and, and being a a very well-known individual. Uh, So in that way, I think the only thing that it has changed uh, is that it has changed my my own legacy for a lack of a better word. You know, before going to Congress, I was just uh, another Vietnamese American. Uh, after being elected, uh, my legacy now is being the first Vietnamese American uh, elected to Congress. But in regards to whether or not it has changed who I am as a person, it hasn't. Uh, has it made my life financially better? Not really. Um, but it does allow me to be better known and it might open other doors for me uh, better than if I were not a member of Congress. And after the congressional time that you had, 
do you have more um more ambitions to be in politics i do i do um and 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 my desire to be to be in politics or to get back into politics uh stems from my first motivation to win uh to run uh it's the motivation to help people the desire to help people the desire to build a better community to build a better society and that is part of my doctoral dissertation actually is um is how do we go about in building a better society uh what do we need to do as a country what do we need to do as a congress to build a better society um so yes uh i still have that desire to get back to politics uh the only question is uh when and where well let's uh let's do a deep dive into the american society because i do feel like we are in a decline now how much of a decline to what degree i don't know but i can remember being younger and feeling like the united states was a really good place to be and it still is probably the best to place to be on earth however i think the quality of people's mental health their feelings about the world has steeply declined how do you feel about that again as as you said the united states is still uh the best country in the world we are the wealthiest and the most powerful country in the world but but at the same time though uh, obviously societies do change um when i first came uh to the united states in 75 um there were not as many people living in the united states then than it is now um but obviously you know technology technology do change and 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 in our day and age you know with uh, social media with a uh, 24 hour news so on and so forth we're able to see the problems uh, right away uh, like before when we first came in 1975 the problems are probably there but we were not we did not have access to it we did not have the technology to know the problems instantly so again i guess our perception of society being worse now than before might be due to the fact that we have easier access to news easier access to information while before the problems were probably there but we did not know about it we did not have access to information about it um you know during the 60s uh was there the you know vampirant drug use of course uh, like 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 now uh, there are some drug use uh were there social unrest during the 60s of course there were so uh, social unrest during the 60s were there social unrest during the 70s of course there were were there wars in the 60s 70s yeah in the 60s there's the vietnam war in the 70s there were wars uh, all all over you know in in many parts of the world uh so uh again i i would not say that we have more problems now than we had before i would say that maybe we might have less problem now than we had before but now we have quicker access to news we have quicker access to information and therefore we it leads us to think that our society now is worse than before that yeah, makes sense i hope you're right <laughs> i i mean we we have technology now we have uh i i think that you know just 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 look at american society right in the 60s there were there were mass a uh, segregation you have african americans being lynched publicly in the south you have you know you have social unrest uh between black and white 
that was pretty much rampant. But now we don't have that anymore. You know, we have occasional uh, social unrest. We have occasional uh, uh, racial conflicts, but it was not as rampant as as it was in in the 60s. So when you look at, for example, a society as a whole, uh, we are becoming more and more mature uh, as a society. We begin to accept people of other races more readily than before as a society. So if you look at the history uh, of the United States, we have, uh, we have progressed very far. And I am a member of Congress as a Vietnamese American was, is because of the changes that were, that were being made, that were being pushed by other minority groups that came before me. So yes, we have progressed as a society and we have progressed to be a better society. But do we still have a lot of problems? Of course we do. And that's where we come in. That's where you and I become in, the people who want to make the change, the people who are willing to make the change, and the people who will put the time to make the change. And how do we get younger people, younger Vietnamese more involved in politics or have more interest in the political game? Or does it just come with time where, you know, they're going to be hit with practical problems with rent, with wages, and then they have to get, they have to roll their sleeves up. I mean, can we get them involved earlier? I guess we can get them involved earlier through, um, through community activism. Uh, you know, when you and I, we were at the conference uh, this past uh, month uh, in Oregon, where we get to meet uh a number of young people who are very proactive, who are uh, extremely intelligent uh, and want to make the change. And and I was very much inspired by them actually. And we will continue to have those young people uh, in the future. Uh, and whether, or, yeah, and, and again, you, you don't have to be a politician in order to make change, in order to improve our community, uh, but, having people in power uh, would enable us to promote change more quickly uh, and, and more readily. Uh, so, you know, when, 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 when I look at our community, I'm very optimistic. Uh, you know, we have uh, extremely, extremely talented, uh, intelligent young people growing up in this country. Uh, and those young people will eventually promote change for the better uh, in our community. You mentioned he, you mentioned Hung Gao earlier. Uh, what kind of a shot does he have? I don't know. I I, I don't know the um, the political dynamics in Virginia, uh, uh, but obviously, if he if he runs against an incumbent, uh, it's always extremely difficult. He ran before uh, for for a uh, for a house seat. Um, and he was defeated by, I believe, by seven percentage points. Uh, whether or not he's able to win uh, in Virginia, that's very hard to say. Uh, it really depends on how much money he's able to raise, what, what his message mm-hmm. is. If he's able to run a very well campaign with clear message that resonates with people, there would be a good chance that he could win. But if he's not able to do that, then it's going to be very, very difficult for him to win. And are there other political stars on the horizon? I, I, I guess there will always be. Uh, I, I know that in California, uh, there are always young people running for council seats, uh, state representatives, state senate. Uh, and as we uh, progress as a community, I'm pretty sure there will be more young people who will, who are willing to be involved in politics. So I'm not afraid. I'm, I'm not afraid of our young people not getting involved. I'm very optimistic that in the future, we will have more young people being involved. And looking back on your political time, what was the most challenging or stressful parts of it? I would have to say being away from my family. 
mm. was the most challenging part. Um, we spent four to five days up on the hill, and then we would come home uh, during the weekends. Uh, uh, when I was in Congress, my daughter was four. The other the other daughter was five, mm. uh, and so it was it was extremely difficult for me to leave them every Monday uh, and to say goodbye and be away from them for four, four, uh, four to five days during the week. So that was the most challenging aspect of being a member, a member of Congress for me, especially uh, when you have small children, yeah. that, that's yeah, always that's very hard. challenging. That's very hard to do, especially at that age. But uh, if you were to do another two years right after that and another two years right after that, you would basically miss out on them growing up, wouldn't you? That's that's exactly it. But you know, I I, I guess um, I guess there's always an option for for me to move them to DC. So if I were in a position that is more stable, uh, for example, if I were to be a U.S. senator where my term is six years, more likely than not, I would probably move them to DC. And did you ever think about running for senator? I did. Uh, I I did actually ran. Uh, six years ago, I believe, uh, for a Senate seat in Louisiana, uh, but I was unsuccessful. And what's the difference between, in terms of mechanics and money, what's the difference between running for Congress and a Senator? Well, the, the amount of money is, 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 uh, very much different because, uh, in Louisiana, there are six congressional districts. So if you are running for a house seat, you only focus, uh, for example, my, my seat uh, covers only the area of New Orleans and the surrounding areas of New Orleans. So the money that I have to spend will not be as much as, as if I were to run for the Senate seat where I have to spend the money statewide. So the amount, so the amount of money that I have to spend running for a Senate seat would be much greater than running for a house seat. Yeah, it's on orders of, of multiples, right? That, that's that's that is correct. You know, if, if I were to run for a house seat, uh, to have a to to be uh, a credible candidate, I would need to raise between one and two million dollars. For a Senate seat, I would have probably have to raise around around ten million in order to be a credible candidate. And so going into that uh, six years ago. Did I mean, I'm sure you knew that and you you went through it that because you thought you had a shot at it or or I mean, what's what was the mindset six years ago? Did you was there war chest big enough? And is the the the, the not being voted in? Was it an issue of money or message? What, what do you think it was? It was an issue of money. I, I was not able to raise the the amount of money that I would need. Uh, to run a credible race. Um, so, so again, uh, elections uh, at the end of the day will boil us down to how much money you have. Wow. Have you been to Vietnam? Uh, three times, yes. And what's your thoughts on uh, going back home? Uh, you know, uh, I, my, my first trip to Vietnam was in 1994. Uh, when I was a seminarian, I was there to actually help the church in Vietnam. Uh, and that was probably the most um, beneficial trip that I took. Uh, the other two times I went back after uh, I married my wife. Uh, and that trip was was simply uh, for pleasure. But, but the conditions in, in, in Vietnam at that time was we did not really enjoy ourselves that much in Vietnam. And then I, my third time I went back to, to, to Vietnam was when I was a member of Congress. Uh, uh, and as, as I, uh, I shared with some of, some of you, I was only there for two days. And when I was there, um, there, there were always people following me wherever, wherever I went. So it was not, uh, it was not a pleasant uh, trip for me. Uh, visiting Vietnam when, when as a member of Congress. Now, when you say people were following you, was it because the government of Vietnam wanted to protect you because, you know, you're a U.S. congressman and they don't want anything to happen to you, or it was more nefarious than that? 
I think it was more nefarious than that. They wanted to make sure that I was not there to uh to do something that would that would compromise uh their security, that would somehow compromise their regime. Uh so to even though they're even though they said that they were there to protect me, their main intention was to make sure that I did not do anything that would compromise um, the communist regime. There's a lot of divisiveness within our Vietnamese community. I bring this up all the time and I, I like to get people's opinion. The issues of uh, modernity and the next generation like my my generation, the second generation, we need to grow and we need to improve our Vietnamese-American relations with the homeland, with the people from the homeland, with the government, and we have to really get involved. And many times that is um, not very supported by an older generation. Do you see that gap ever shrinking um, in the near future? What, what's your thoughts on all that? Again, uh, you know, there, there, there always be uh, the the different dynamics uh, in regards to um, how we approach Vietnam as a community. Uh, for me, uh, when I was in Congress, I found actually I found uh, both positions to be very helpful. You know, we need we need voices from both sides uh, in order to uh, get the communists, to get the change that, that we need from the, from the communist government. You know, in, in philosophy, um, the concept of virtue, virtue according to Aristotle is the, is the means between two extremes, is the middle, okay? That, 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 that is what virtue is, virtue is the middle. So, so for me as a member of Congress, when I'm pushing, when I'm pushing and pulling Vietnam uh, to either uh, promote change or to bring better relations, so on and so forth, uh, both voices from both ends uh, are, are always very helpful. You know, we're able to say, okay, this group wants this, that group wants that, and somehow where can we meet in the middle for us to compromise? Oh, I love that answer. Yeah. yeah, because it, it doesn't alienate anybody. And it actually forces us to focus on finding the path that we can all work together. Although it's we come from extremes, we should be able to find the strength mm -hmm. in, in coming together. Right. Right. Because, because, you, because you know, the, the, on, on the one end of the stream where uh, you have people who don't want improved relations, uh, you know that might not be the best approach, and then on the other end, on end of the spectrum, where you have people who who want better relations but who don't want Vietnam to change, well, that might not be. Better. So if if we are somehow able to to use uh, both sides of the coin, yeah, in yeah. order to get what we want, I think is always the best option. Yeah. You know, I want to end on uh, talking about the future of your work. Uh, why are you getting a PhD? What is the, what do you think the impact of that is? And the second part is, well, uh, what what will you do in the future after you get that PhD? Well, first and foremost, uh, in getting my PhD, um, I guess it's, I want to improve myself as a person personally to improve my understanding of the world, my understanding of society, um, but uh, but also I would like to uh, to convey my ideas, to convey uh, my understanding of the world in order to hopefully bring about change. Uh, you know, even though I'm still even though I'm out of Congress, I still have friends in Congress where I can sit down and talk to them and say, hey, uh, let's look at this issue. Let's look at how we approach this issue. Let's look at how we can basically solve this issue. Uh, 
And I'm still able to do that. For example, uh, Senator Bill Cassia and I uh, were very good friends. And we would routinely sit down, have coffee, and talk about, uh, for example, how to reform Social Security, uh, how to improve uh, the economic conditions for our young people, uh, how to fight crime. So we sit down and, and then share ideas all the time. So for me, uh, the better I understand the world, the better uh, I understand society, the more I'm able to help people like Bill Cassidy to make the better decisions. And what will you do uh, beyond the PhD? Will you teach? Will you be in an academic position? I don't know. I don't know. I. I might. I. 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 I always love to write, so I would probably try to publish some books, convey my ideas. Uh, but at the same time, maybe even involved in uh, in a think tank, uh, a conservative think tank, or or, or what have you. So uh, uh, there are always options out there. But first and foremost, uh, the reason why I'm getting a PhD is to improve myself. Mm. That's the best reason for anything. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, uh, Joseph. You are, um, you know, I really wanted to interview you from day one. You know, over four years ago, I was looking to forward to this day because you know you've always been somebody I've known about. Um, you know, early in my life, and so thank you. It's a, it was a real honor to to be able to speak to you today. Well, thank you, Kenneth, and thank you for giving me a chance to to speak with you today. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. Special thanks to Brittany Tran, to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Crystal Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast.